0: bum bum ba bum 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 bam ba bam bum bum bam ba bam bum bum bam ba bam bum bam bum ba bum 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 ba bum 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 ba bum 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 ba You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month, we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. In this episode, we're plummeting into perdition's flame with heavenly lovebirds Angela and Sarah, as experienced in the Marvel Comics series 1602, Witch Hunter Angela. And replying, Robin Roberts brighter by the day to their relationship woes.
1: Yeah, we are. Uh, but as we mentioned last week during our Tyler Crook Creator Corner conversation, San Diego Comic-Con is right around the corner, Lisa. And as of this recording, we're just 10 days away.
0: And as Brad's excitement mounts, my anxiety <laughs> intensifies because I feel... So underprepared. I have so much laundry to do. I want to get my hair recut because mm-hmm. my haircut's grown out and I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't like it so much. I have one of my pairs of glasses, like uh, <laughs> the arm is like bent and all out of.
1: Because I stepped on it. I em. stepped
0: on my glasses, so I've got to go. Get get those fixed and, and um, but I just, I, I don't know. Do any of my pants fit? I don't know.
1: Don't, but don't you take comfort in the knowledge that you feel this way every time we go to Comic Con?
0: I feel like it's part of the process that I have to feel this way to have a successful Uh uh Comic-Con. So uh I don't have a great Comic-Con if I'm not at first miserable and anxious.
1: And it's been a few years, like 2019 was the last one we attended, so you're not used to this feeling. It's been a few years since you've uh, released this anxiety. We
0: haven't really traveled.
1: No. I mean, I went to Star Wars Celebration, so I'm feeling a lot more... You've broken your seal. Yeah, I, I feel a lot more comfortable like going through the airport, getting on a plane, going to a convention where there's thousands of people. I like,
0: haven't been on a plane since pre-pandemic. Yeah. Like correct. we went we we went to Minnesota for my grandfather's funeral. Drove. And um,
1: I think that's it. That's it. That's it, yeah, 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 yeah. We went to Baltimore Comic Con and we drove up to uh, New York to see the monkeys or that's Pennsylvania true. to see the that's monkeys. That's
0: true, and we went to Ohio.
1: Yeah, we went to Ohio. Yeah, so
0: we've done some We've travel. done stuff, but I have not been on a plane. Are, are,
1: are you feeling some plane anxiety?
0: I always have plane anxiety. I don't like planes. Yeah, I but mean, now I don't like planes for even more reasons.
1: So the last time I went to Comic Con with you, you were there. Oh, thanks. Uh, Twenty nineteen. <laughs> I we flew. We flew early. We landed like several days before the con, so we could enjoy L.A. and San Diego before all the madness happened. And just as the con was getting started. I got horrendously sick. And And by
0: horrendously sick, he means a cold. He had a cold. He had had a little scratch, scratch of the throat. I lost
1: my voice. And listeners of Comic Book Couples Counseling know that because they can go back and listen to our San Diego Comic-Con interview with Jason Mewes where my voice was shot and you asked all the questions. Yeah, that's
0: true. And they were all my questions. I did the whole interview.
1: So so I love the idea of wearing masks on a plane now.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm not really that concerned about wearing a mask mask on a plane like I've I've we've done other things where I've been wearing a mask the whole day and I've been fine I'm just talking about my usual garden variety I'm gonna have to socialize. I have a little social anxiety. Um, there are going to be things I cannot anticipate and control, you know,
1: the usual. Yeah, but it's not going to be the usual either. This is going to be a very unique Comic-Con for us. We've reached out to a ton of creators this year. We've had tremendous response regarding that. I think we're gonna be doing more interviews. You're gonna be writing for Film School Rejects in addition to comic book couples counseling.
0: I am, I can't believe we're announcing that.
1: Yeah, we're announcing it right Now, Lisa, what
0: if I fail? (laughs) What if I don't write a a darn thing?
1: That's okay, but I don't think that's going to be the case. So, uh, this is going to be a bigger and better Comic Con experience for comic book couples counseling, and I'm crazy excited. And I know you're crazy excited.
0: I truly am. I always love conventions, even though, um, as an anxious person, there are many triggers there, sure, sure, but uh, like. For me, the emotional math is just worth it.
1: Absolutely. And we were really thrilled this past week to receive an email from the San Diego Union Tribune from writer Zara Ersad asking us to contribute our top tip or trick for attending San Diego Comic-Con. And we mulled it over for a little bit and we ultimately reached the conclusion that the best thing you can do when attending the San Diego Comic-Con is finding a way to enjoy the lines.
0: Lines at a convention, any convention, but especially San Diego (laughs) Comic-Con, are an inevitability. If you are not in line, you are not participating. So you can't fight it. So why not find a way to enjoy yourself, make the lines an enriching, engaging experience?
1: Yeah, and as we suggest in our tiny blurb, when you're in line, you're in line with people, right? That's what a line is. So get to know those people. And I know that can be challenging and Lisa's already expressed that it's challenging for her, but it's also incredibly rewarding.
0: And, uh, you know, I can always put headphones in, (laughs) you know, like there are universal uh, symbols for like, I'm not open, but if I had never turned to my neighbor and said hello i would not have the friends i've made at comic con today and i and i would be missing out
1: Yeah, but I think that's also a good point. You know, like have your headphones, have your podcast, have your games loaded up on your phone.
0: I think it's even better to have a stack of comics Uh, because like everybody's standing around looking at their phone. Yes. But if you have a big pair of headphones on and you're fully engaged in a book, people will give you space. That's when I read Grant Morrison's Super Gods. Uh, That is a great Comic-Con line read.
1: Such a good line read. Although the moment you take those headphones out, if someone around you has some interest in that book or some knowledge around that book, it'll also engage in a conversation. And I would just, I would encourage you if you have the spoons, if you have the emotional energy to embrace those conversations, because yeah, some of our best friends have come out of those lines. And you know, as great as the panels are or the exclusives are, honestly, years later, I don't remember, purchasing that Funko Pop. I don't really remember that Hall H panel, but I do still have those connections with our Khan family. Anyway, we were like super honored to be asked to contribute a top tip to the San Diego Union Tribune. We have links in the show notes to that article. It is behind a paywall, But if you head on over to CBCC podcast on Twitter and Instagram, you can read our blurb. I put it out there. (laughs) And if you're interested to hear what our Comic-Con experience is going to be like, uh, stay tuned at the end of this show where we tease some of those upcoming episodes.
0: You know what is another really great, maybe if not the top tip? then really close to the top of the tip.
1: <laughs> What's the second tip?
0: <laughs> that uh, things are not going to go the way that you expect. You're
1: right. And right. your
0: heart and mind has to be open and just trust that the Comic-Con you have is the Comic-Con you were always meant to have.
1: Yeah, so this is going to be our 10th Comic-Con, Although I I miswrote in the San Diego Union Tribune that it was going to be our 11th, but it's actually our 10th Comic-Con.
0: But we are going to have an 11th, so that'll eventually be true. Right.
1: But if you go back and you look at our planning and our notes that we took in 2011 and 2012 for those cons, like all the strategies that we came up with, and then you compare it to our 2019, well, like you just got to go with the flow. Like, okay, yeah, I want to get into Hall H. I want to see Marvel Studios do their thing. Uh, It's either gonna happen or if it's not, and if it's not gonna be happening, then there's something else out there that's super rad and cool.
0: I would still like to do slightly more planning than we have done right now. (laughs)
1: Like, I'm
0: not ready to fully go with the flow. Uh, I would like a paddle.
1: I hear you, I hear you. We're not leaving tomorrow. We, We have a week. We're gonna do some planning. I'm just saying, you know, like... Like, you know, we're much more lackadaisical than we were.
0: I am not a leaf on the wind. But
1: that directly contradicts that second tip, that tip that's close to the tip. Well, I, the said, the tip.
0: <laughs> I said the tip, like, where it's just like, it's not going to go the way that you expect, and then you're like, so don't plan at all. All of that planning we did in the, the past was foolish. I'm Middle not saying ground. that. okay. I'm just dialing it back.
1: Okay, okay. And speaking of dialing it back, 1602, Lisa. Good segue. Thank you. Witchfinder, Angela, man, it is such an odd follow-up to the previous Angela and Sarah storyline that we covered in Asgard's Assassin. When we last left these characters, it was revealed that Sarah was actually Malekith, but he had learned Sarah's mannerisms from Sarah herself, who was in fact dead and imprisoned within hell, that's one L, thanks to creating a pathway to hell, again, one L, for all dead angels, Uh, also one L. Asgard's assassin ended with Angela making a vow to travel to hell and rescue her love. However, 1602 Witch Hunter Angela is not a continuation of that story. At best, we could call it a side quest or a diversion. At worst, we could call it another Marvel event crossover cash grab.
0: Wait, so how did she get out of hell then?
1: Well, I mean, she hasn't gotten out of hell, right? This is like, like I said, this is a diversion. This is like a stop in the previous storyline. This we're is gonna,
0: a flight of fancy.
1: Right, and we're gonna- I hate these. <laughs> we're gonna pick up that uh, Queen of Hell story in the Queen of Hell trade paperback, which we're covering on our next session with Angela and Sarah. So
0: our last session wasn't technically a session with Angela and Sarah, because Sarah was Malaketh, And this session is not technically- Because it is Angela and Sarah, but this is like an alternate Angela and Sarah. Kind
1: of like, okay, we're gonna gonna get to it. We're gonna get to it. To understand what the hell is going on in Witch Hunter Angela, you need to know a little something about two major Marvel storylines, the 1602 universe and Jonathan Hickman and Issa Adribick's Secret Wars storyline, which was a pseudo spiritual sequel to the classic Secret Wars event from 1984, which they made all those rad toys and McFarlane has made reproductions of all those rad toys that I had as a child. I'm very excited about all that. But that Secret Wars has nothing to do with this Secret Wars. Anyway, okay. Um, So we previously covered the 2015 Secret Wars during our Norrin Rad and Don Greenwood Silver Surfer Session series. If you want a little more in-depth discussion on what the heck it is, jump on over to that show. And yeah, you can find a link in the show notes. Basically, here's the deal. Dr. Doom smashed all the Marvel multiverses onto one planet called Battleworld, where he rules over like a god. On this planet, previous universes like the 1602 realm or the Marvel Zombies realm or the Old Man Logan apocalypse exist as territories behind well-guarded borders. Eventually, Mr. Fantastic and a core group of Marvel heroes defeat Doom and return everything to the status quo, kinda... If you haven't read Secret Wars, you should give it a go. It's easily my favorite big Marvel event storyline and a perfect capper to what Jonathan Hickman started with his Fantastic Four series and he carried over into his two Avengers series, which was Infinity. Like all that, like all of that Hickman stuff, I adore and highly, 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 highly recommend it. Uh, But uh, we can't get into it. What's super cool about taking a character like Angela and placing her in 1602 is that. Both are creations of Neil Gaiman. In our last session episode, we went into great detail about Angela's unique creation over in Image Comics through the Spawn comic book and Todd McFarlane, speaking of Todd McFarlane. Now we got to talk about the strange trip it took to bring 1602 into being.
0: When Neil Gaiman and Marvel Comics love each other very much, they hold hands over a bubbling lawsuit and 1602 is born.
1: <laughs> kind of. Uh, 1602 was an eight-issue miniseries written by Neil Gaiman, illustrated by Andy Kubert, colored by Richard Eisenoff, and published in 2003. Also, Scott uh, McCohen did these incredible sketchboard covers that everyone listening should go take a look at and get lost in. Uh, the story was set in a timeline where the Marvel characters existed during the Elizabethan era navigating tricky political waters and also fighting an unseen force threatening to destroy their reality. Uh, This reality was eventually designated Earth 311, Lisa. And all your faves are there, Spider-Man, Doctor Doom, Daredevil, Captain America, Nick Fury, etc. But they have like uh, an Elizabethan twist and often an Elizabethan name.
0: I wish that I could make a 311 reference. That is a band, right? (laughs) It
1: is. I also could not make a 311 reference. I'm
0: not going to Google it.
1: I think we're better people for it, Lisa. Gaiman coming over to Marvel was one of those coups for Joe Quesada, who was the newly entrenched editor-in-chief. Despite spending so much time on the other side of the comics publishing world, see our Sleepwalking with Sandman Patreon podcast, Neil Gaiman adored Marvel Comics. In August 2001, he agreed to do something for Quesada, and then 9-11 happened a month later. He could not imagine himself writing a comic set amongst New York City's skyscrapers, and he didn't even want to think about planes as he wrote in the afterword of the 1602 collection, quote, I didn't want it to be a war story and I didn't want to write a story in which might made right or in which might made anything, end quote. While in a trip to Venice, Gaiman was overtaken with the idea that the past and the present are very closely connected. And it was on his return trip that he concocted the idea that would become 1602. 1602 was a bit of a return to comics for Gaiman. When the book came out, it had been five years since his last comic book story. It re-familiarized him with his love for the medium. And he would return to Marvel to write an Eternals miniseries alongside John Romita a junior, another book I think everyone should read. One final note about 1602, Gaiman took the profits made from this series and funneled it into his Marvels and Miracles LLC company, which he used to fight for the rights to the Miracle Man character. And that whole Angela lawsuit with McFarlane was wrapped up in that too. Nearly 20 years later, both Angela and Miracle Man are rocking and rolling within Marvel Comics. Too freaking funny. So, yes, when Secret Wars dredged up all these old multiverses, of course Angela was going to be dropped into the 1602 Earth 311 realm. It's too damn good of a meta opportunity to miss. Uh, But before we can get into Witch Hunter Angela and back into session with Angela and Sarah, Lisa, we got to talk about our love expert.
0: Good Morning America, our love expert is Robin Roberts, that is her signature sign-on for every episode of Good Morning America, and according to her book, she means it every time. But
1: isn't the show also called Good Morning America? Yeah,
0: but then she also says it,
1: uh huh.
0: and then she also means it, and I think that that's the part that matters. She uh, is co-anchor uh-huh. of America's number one morning show for nine consecutive seasons, ABC's, Good Morning America. She is also a New York Times best-selling author, a winner of six Emmys for Outstanding Morning Program, and the winner of a Peabody Award.
1: And she rocks it on the red carpet.
0: She does. We went into it in the last episode. Link in the show notes. She's got them guns.
1: She would fit right at home on Themyscira mm-hmm. or in Heaven, the Marvel Comics version.
0: Ooh, yeah. I like that. The book we are using of hers is Brighter by the Day, Waking Up to New Hopes and Dreams, written with collaborative writer Michelle Burford, in which Roberts encourages her readers to begin their training to be more optimistic so we can foster a sustained sense of joy in our lives as we reach our goals. In our last session, we introduced Angela and Sarah to part one of Brighter by the Day, The Joy Mindset. Roberts believes that optimism and joy has to be a priority. We have to choose it over the more transitory states of comfort and happiness. Here's a quote. Positivity has no cruise control. We can't just embrace joy once, sit back, and expect to run on automatic. We've got to keep choosing a sunny perspective, shifting our mindset purposefully.
1: And that was our takeaway last session, that mood is a muscle. You know, a good attitude is a muscle. You have to keep practicing it.
0: Exactly. She emphasizes visualizing and moving towards goals as well as practicing gratitude for what we do have going for us in the present. It's been an uphill battle persuading Angela to prioritize (laughs) optimism, but we do see her repeatedly choosing Sarah, and I see that as her claiming a piece of joy for herself. Yeah, absolutely. I see Sarah as a much more open to the idea Mm -hmm. of confronting the status quo in order to discern what feels best for her in her life with Angela.
1: And she's simply not as adherent to the rules that Angela perceives are essential to being an angel, right? That notion of balance that Angela's Asgard's assassin was all about. Sarah is less like, you know, concerned about that.
0: I'm I'm wondering if on the Gretchen Rubin four tendencies is, I'm wondering if she is like, a questioner that tips rebel or a rebel that tips questioner. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, yeah. she she does I think that Sarah is like myself an individualist. She's not one who wants to blend in with the crowd. She if she is somewhere, she wants to be there with purpose, so that everyone can see her specialness.
1: I wanna reserve judgment on Sarah's character until our final session with the
0: But <laughs> When two. we actually get Sarah?
1: Well, exactly, right? So like, the Sarah we got in Asgard's Assassin was technically Malekith mimicking Sarah, and then this Sarah is Sarah, but a Sarah of the 1602 universe, or at least a Sarah of all the mashed up realities on Battleworld. I, I, Secret Wars, It's still I'm still a little confused on what's going on with Battle World and like is this this uh, a Sarah we know or the Sarah we knew? Uh, uh, we we don't even know Sarah. So Queen of Hell, she's in hell right now. We need to go rescue her, and once we've rescued her, uh, then I think uh, we'll be able to tell if this version of Sarah in sixteen oh two and the version that we saw Malekith mimicking was a true representation of that Sarah, which was which was not the case, right? I don't, you know, it's confusing. <laughs> um, Comics. I think
0: what is the case is that we all contain multitudes, <laughs> and I think that if there is like a platonic ideal of Sarah, like a true, the one true Sarah? I, it's not that there's a platonic
1: ideal of Sarah that I'm looking for. I'm looking for this, you know, the 616 Sarah, and we haven't really met that one.
0: And whose fault is that? You do the programming for uh, this show. No, th- this is the
1: storyline. This is, it's not my fault, this is Marvel's fault. But I know I'm like repeating myself with stuff I've already said. I gotta move on, I just gotta accept it for what it is.
0: Clearly you're working on something. Yes. Now, I think we're ready to introduce the ideas of part two of Brighter by the Day entitled Positive on Purpose. Roberts believes that when we move through life believing there is something we are meant to do and that we inherently have everything it takes to meet that goal, we will have better access to our joy. It's an expansion on one of the concepts from part one, make your one day your day one. This is This part is seven chapters that I have condensed down into seven principles. Oh, man. So here we go. Number one, dream big, focus small. Mm -hmm. Since Robin was a little girl, she was a huge believer in logging your aspirations. Write what you want down. In her senior year of high school, Robin knew she wanted to be a sports newscaster on ESPN. She then broke down what she believed she needed to do to get there, bullet point by bullet point. Her bulleted list ended with her getting on ESPN by 1990, when she would be 29 years old. When ESPN offered her a job to get her foot in the door in 1987, three years before her bulleted pointed plan, she turned it down. Oh, wow. I know, here's the quote. I knew I needed more experience. My heart told me that, and so did God.
1: Wow, okay, all right.
0: In 1990, the managing editor of SportsCenter finally recruited her as the network's first black female anchor. I think one discerning thing is that the job she was offered in 1987 was a very much a foot-in-the-door job, where the 1990 job offer was the job that she wanted. Clearly
1: it worked out for her.
0: Just a heads up, Robin gets way more spiritual in the second part of the book, and we've all been in conversations like this where you, like, open the door to, like, you know, I'm open to talking about spirituality, and then you're like, whoa, now with a stranger I'm in way too deep. (laughs) There is a lot of listening to and listening for God's voice. I think this will be slightly more complicated for Angela and Sarah in 1602, considering that their god is Doom, who <laughs> is telling them to genocide mutants or uh-huh. witch breeds. Uh-huh. So um, I'm just putting that out there. Okay. Number two, when fear knocks, let faith answer. On Robin Roberts' roundtable discussion show on Disney+, Plus, Turning Tables with Robin Roberts, Debbie Allen asked her what interview gave her the most stage fright. Robin knew it was her 2012 interview with President Barack Obama. It was soon after Vice President Biden had come out in favor of same-sex marriage, and she knew that the White House was using Good Morning America as a platform to do the same. Mm -hmm. Robin seriously considered turning down the opportunity, saying that it was because she had been recently diagnosed with a rare blood cancer, MDS, and was given two years to live but what she was really afraid of is that she'd be outed on national television. Mm. She never considered herself in the closet because she was always out to the people in her life, just not on TV. Long story short, she did say yes, and she wasn't outed. It was one of her many proud moments in her career that fear almost didn't let happen. Mm. Um, She doesn't do, like, and this is another um, example of when she was like, I listened to my heart, I listened to God, God said this was the right thing to do. Um, She doesn't do a really clear job of discerning when fear is fear and trying to um, kind of protect your comfort zone and when fear is God's voice. I think that that is like a very personal, indescribable thing. Mm, Sure. Number three, your tribe determines your vibe. Eliminate from your life the people who make you feel terrible and discourage you from changing and bettering yourself. How do you determine which ones are the keepers and which ones are the ones you should just throw away? Listen to your body. Quote, you and I are living, breathing magnets, energy fields capable of drawing others towards us. We're also sensors. Notice how after a conversation with one person, you feel lighter and freer. While an exchange with someone else clenches your jaw. Sure. That's your body's way of indicating the type of vibe exchanged: a visceral, thumbs up, or thumbs down.
1: <laughs> Easier said than done, Robin. I,
0: I know. I can never hear someone talk about thinking with your gut without thinking about high fidelity and John oh. Cusack like uh-huh. looking at the camera, going like, my gut has S for brains, because <laughs> like, I yeah. am a person, we've already talked about it in this episode, in the introduction, I have a lot of social anxiety. Right. So even really wonderful hangs with my friends can leave me feeling stressed, depleted, self-conscious. Yeah,
1: but you still know and your gut knows as Robin will tell you that there are there are people that create anxiety just because it's a social situation and that's your normal anxiety. And then there are people who make you feel bad, right? right. And and you, you don't need to be around those those negative folks, but sometimes those negative folks are families, <laughs> are, are really long relationships. Or sometimes
0: those like, negative folks are the people who really need a friend.
1: Yes, yes. You know. So it, it's it's difficult.
0: Number four, get ready for your suddenly. As a student athlete, Robin took to heart the lessons that her coaches taught her, especially when it came to positioning yourself to score. Quote, Grabbing rebounds, for instance, doesn't just happen. You've got to place yourself between your opponent and the basket so you can recover the ball the moment the shot goes wonky. In tennis, a strong forehand is all in the preparation, aligning your hips and upper body to move in concert with the racket. Positioning is what leads to triumph. Proximity is what lends power. That's Mm. the end of the quote. Robin applied this lesson when she was invited to contribute Sports Files to Good Morning America. She began showing up at the office whether she had a story to pitch or not. By just being there, she was given the opportunity to co-host on Sundays. The rest is history with six Emmy Awards to show for it.
1: We can tie this back to the documentary Drawing Monsters about Mike Mignola, and he discusses how the simple fact that he was in the bullpen at Marvel's in New York, shadowing those doorways, darkening those doorways, I believe <laughs> is the actual term, darkening those doorways when they needed somebody in a pinch, even though his talent wasn't quite there yet, they would grab Mignola to do the job because he was there.
0: If I may insert my own expert, like non-expert, but my <laughs> own love advice, yeah. this can also be applied to dating. If mm. you want, that nerd partner of your dreams, you should be going to where the nerds are. Go to comic book stores. Go to conventions. And this is not like a free pass. Lisa Gullickson said that I should be hitting on everybody and everybody. Like just, just by being in a place with the kinds of people you want to hang out with, you're going to be, you're going to end up hanging out with those people. That's
1: the aspect, and I would say, you know, my uh, addition to your advice is. You go to these places that you already like, Mm -hmm. and you will be around people that you like, and maybe a connection happens there romantically, maybe it doesn't. And the
0: worst that happens is that you're in a cool place. Exactly.
1: But don't just start preying on people at Comic-Con.
0: Oh gosh, That, that deserves its own little episode. Number five, lighter by the day. Over the course of her reporting career, Robin has gotten to witness and be inspired by stories of radical forgiveness. She interviewed Judge Esther Salas after her son was murdered in her home in 2020 by a self-proclaimed anti-feminist who was there to assassinate her. When Robin asked how Salas found it in her heart to forgive her son's murderer, she answered, hate is heavy, love is light. Robin suggests that we can lighten our loads by practicing forgiveness every single day with the goal of being forgivingly fit.
1: Yeah, and I'm really working on this from a driving perspective, mm. right? You know, uh- I love to comment on other drivers around me when I see them doing something that I go like, oh, there's a stop sign. Like, I'm I, so I'm trying to stop that and I'm trying to acknowledge the other drivers, like people like me, there's a human behind that wheel. And so when I see something that I go like, oh, that's a crazy move, what are you doing? I go, you know, uh, I just I try to forgive them for whatever they're trying to do. I don't know what their story is. I don't know what their journey is. Ah, uh, good, good luck, friend.
0: I also think that this can be applied to just general pet peeves.
1: Yeah, of course. People
0: say like, "Oh, it always bothers me when someone thoughtlessly does this." Yeah. And um, what I say about pet peeves is, it's only your pet because you keep feeding it yeah. and watering it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that love that that it does get exhausting to be to be a like. To just be out judging people. Yes. And I think that we do it because it does rev our engine a little bit. It does feel good to get self-righteous and get a little annoyed and get a little judgy. Because
1: you got to get righteous sometimes, especially today. <laughs> but
0: I think that you have to realize the petty stuff. And sometimes like it comes at a cost. Yeah. It does. You have to ask yourself, is this worth my energy? Yes. Yeah. And and like when it comes to uh, forgiving your son's murderer, like, that's not something that you're doing for the sake of your murder, of the murderer. It's something that you, you're you doing for the sake of yourself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, incredible. Ex- it's incredible. It's incredible. It's
1: an incredible idea, and I, I believe in that idea. Thankfully, I've never had to, like, practice that aspect of it, but I can practice uh, recognizing other drivers on, on the freeway.
0: <laughs> and we know that by practicing things like compassion, forgiveness, love, um, generosity, on the small scale prepares you for when you have to do it on the big scale. Right,
1: which is also what stories are, right? We've talked about that in the past. Stories are practice for us to experience these extremes so that we can take these emotions with us when something like those extremes actually do happen.
0: I think this is going to be a challenge for Angela though, because she is a scorekeeper. Yes. Right? She is a nothing for nothing. Yes. Number six, God's delays are not his denials. According to Robin Roberts, God has three answers for prayers. Yes, not yet, and I have something even better in mind for you. As a little girl, Robin wanted to be a professional tennis player, but had to accept that she didn't have the baseline talent or ability to do so. It was her older sister, Sally Ann, who was already a newscaster that put it in her head that she could be a sports newscaster. Here's a quote. The father's plan can come packaged as your plan, the remix. Uh, That's the end of the quote. Ready for another sports metaphor? No. Stay open. We can get so fixated on a specific idea, a specific request for Mm. your future, that you can be blinded to all of the options that you have around you.
1: I think that was called my
0: 20s. Yeah, I I think that um, I do use my past visions of myself as a measuring stick. And I go like, well, I anticipated for me to have this kind of success or to have this kind of um, income or whatever. And, um, and and like the person who made that projection had no idea what her options were. Totally. And I'm sure Angela and Sarah are going to have to do something of a remix to their God's plan because their <laughs> God is doom. Yes. And that and like many God's problematic.
1: There's more relationship with God because he's doom in 1602 than in Angela's assassin, which I think is fascinating.
0: I think a lot a lot of times like a relationship with god gets like reduced down to a relationship with a set of rules mm. and i think that that's definitely how it is treated in, in the- angela mm. like for robin roberts like i can't i can't speak to how her relationship with god is but for a lot of spiritual people god is the one where you put all of your variables where it's like I'm going to take care of everything that I can ca- take care of in terms of doing my best, being a good person, um, you know, reaching my personal goals. And I'm putting my faith in you to take care of all of the other stuff. I think for many people, um, it feels better for the chaos to not have intentionality before behind it i know that i've had i've taken comfort in that idea in the past where it's like hey the the thing that is controlling all of the chaos does not have a personal relationship with me is not thinking about me all i can control is what I choose to do and how I choose to be a good person.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we've talked about that in the past as well. You know, for me, growing up A, religious, these are just questions and concerns I just never thought about and I still really don't think about it at all.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you can relate to God the metaphor.
1: Of course, of course, yes, absolutely. The exorcist is rad, <laughs> okay. uh, the prophecy is rad.
0: <laughs> Number seven, Okay. make your mess your message. While receiving treatment for her breast cancer, Robin recalls crying to her mother asking, why me? Her mom had two messages for her. Everyone's Got Something, which became the title of Robin's best-selling memoir, and Make Your Mess, Your Message. After recovering from that cancer, she was diagnosed with a blood cancer, my, I'm gonna try to say it, myelodyplastic syndrome, or MDS that can only be treated with a bone marrow transplant. Following her mother's advice, Robin made her her message and went public with her disease on GMA and encouraged everyone to add themselves to the Be The Match Registry, a nonprofit organization run by the National Marrow Donor Program, so that others can get a life-saving transplant like the one she got from her sister, Sally Ann. Roberts received a Peabody Award for that program, creating awareness to the rare disease and causing an 1,800% spike in registrants on Be the Match. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's crazy. I've been saying a lot, like, I don't know if this really applies or that really applies, or I don't understand how we're going to, like, relate the idea Mm -hmm. of listening to God's voice, but I think a lot in 1602 is about... Thinking that you are on one mission, yeah, yeah, and yeah, completely having to swerve, totally. And I think in this story, the way that Sarah repeatedly takes the opportunity of her mess to give a message specifically to Angela is really beautiful. I think
1: this is going to work out. I think this is going to work out. But before we can get into session with Emily, so we got to do a little thing called words of affirmation. No, no, no. For our first time listeners, the words of affirmation portion is our way of giving back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. They make this show go, in fact, we're uh, creating this episode right now using new headphones.
0: I'm so excited because then I'm not going to have all of that like black fuzzy stuff from our old headphones. I can go out I can podcast and go out the door with pride knowing that I'm not covered in detritus from my
1: headphones. (laughs) And we bought new digital recorders so when we go out to Comic Con we can do some interviews on the streets. Mm. It's pretty great. So our Patreons do a lot for us. They make this show possible and we want to find a way to give back. And these words of affirmation, the, these words, we've curated them and we use them ourselves and they help us, you know, f- one, they may help us feel better. They help center us. Uh, like we, we live by these words of affirmation. So Lisa, this group that we've got here, we've got three Patreons, two returning patrons, actually, Steve and Max, they left but then they came back. Welcome back. Those are my favorite kind of patrons, the ones who go and come back.
0: We would prefer if they never went.
1: Well, you know, but I also understand that sometimes finances being what finances are, like not everyone can afford to support us financially, and that is A-OK.
0: But we're also like people pleasers, so like <laughs> we feel every rejection so deeply, and when you come back, it feels even better. So it's I'm really I'm not gonna out this
1: person, Lisa, but someone left recently, and we have like an ex Exit survey, right? Oh, no. And you know, financials are not what they once were. Is like an option, or you know, I came here just to listen to one thing and then I left. Thor: Love and Thunder. Uh, <laughs> and and another one is like, uh, it's another reason. <gasps> and we had someone who left for another reason. I'm like, well, what was that reason? It's torturing me <laughs> because we're uh, words of affirmation people, and because we're words of affirmation people, we've curated three batches of affirmation. For these lovely patrons.
0: I do think that we should work on that, though. We shouldn't really measure our self-worth.
1: Yeah, we that's what this podcast is, Lisa. We're all a work in progress, and it's for us, it's happening right here on the <laughs> microphone. But Lisa, please tell us, where are these words of affirmation coming from?
0: This week, they're adapted from quotes included in Robin Roberts' Brighter by the Day. They also were last week. I cannot get enough of these quotes. Love it. These three quotes come from Dolly Parton, James R. Sherman, and Leo Tolstoy.
1: Okay, all right. Okay, so
0: we need to center ourselves.
1: Yeah, clearly.
0: Let's take a nice deep breath. And let's begin. Steve, you don't just hope for a brighter day, you work for a brighter day.
1: Max, you can't go back and make a new start but you can start right now and make a brand new ending.
0: Corey. Your two most powerful warriors are patience and time. Yeah,
1: I think those are great. Those are great. That
0: second one in particular, the one for Max, like the idea of going like, I, I do find myself worrying about my past and how how even recent decisions I go like, oh, I should have, and then I, I wish that I had. But the idea of going like, I am empowered right now.
1: Oh man, for me, I go to the Tolstoy quote, right? You know, your two most powerful warriors are patience and time. Like, I'm feeling that right now. Like, time is your enemy. Mm-hmm. It's also your your greatest hero. Well,
0: I think that like, we do have to go like, the old song says, time is on your side. And I think it's one of the first things we give away like it's free.
1: But if you practice patience, mm. you're able to weaponize time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's what I wish I knew again in my 20s. But I know it now, and I can take that with me into the future.
0: I, I don't know about you, Brad, but I'm having my 20s right now. I decided I'm not gonna start my 20s till my late 30s. Yeah, I, I, don't,
1: I don't, I'm i not even having my 20s now. I'm having my 40s and I am loving it. Uh, 40s are the new 20s.
0: You'll have to tell me all about it because I am not yet in my no.
1: 40s. Oh, I'm a cradle robber. Uh, let's get <laughs> on to the comic. Uh, before we go into session with Angela and Sarah, let's discuss the framework in which we're using. Uh, This week we're discussing 1602 Witch Hunter Angela, issues one through four, written by Marguerite Bennett and Kieran Gillen. What's interesting is that this trade paperback does not separate the pencilers and the inkers, so it's just, Art by Stephanie Hans, Marguerite Sauvage, Irene Coe, Jordi Belair, I guess also the colorists are in here too, Fraser Irving, Cody Chamberlain, Lee Lafridge, and lettered by, guess who, VCs Clayton Cowles.
0: That should definitely be part of the CBCC drinking game. If we mention Clayton Cowles, take a shot.
1: I, I'm going to go back and I'm going to find all the comics we've discussed with Clayton Cowles as a letterer because- In one of our creator corners coming up, a very cool one, Clayton Cowell's letter in that comic, of course. (laughs) But here's the basic plot synopsis for Angela, or witch Witch hunter Angela. I always wanna say witch finder general because of the Vincent Price movie. Here's the plot. In the altered realms of battle world, Angela and Sarah are witch hunters, the scourges of King James's England, 1602. In a land beset by magic and monstrosity, they seek a new and seductive evil, not witch breed, but deal-making Faustians who bargain with ancient creatures for unnatural power. Moral ambiguity question mark, fancy illusions, question mark, marguerite making the most of that
0: English degree. Question
1: mark, <laughs> definitely also making Brad work for that English degree, Marguerite Bennett. Thank you.
0: Haha, ha, jokes on you. I just go on Wikipedia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did not do that kind of level of research.
0: Everything I learned about Faust, I got from the PBS show Wishbone where the dog <laughs> Rihanna plays all of the uh-huh. parts in, yeah. in classic literature. Yeah. So Everything
1: good. I learned about Faust, I got from the comic book Faust. Nice. No, 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 Lisa. The opposite of nice. Faust is naughty. Not nice. Naughty? Yeah, it is quite <laughs> naughty. Uh, Alright, so it is time to bring Angela and Sarah into session with comic book couples counseling through these doors, ladies. Right this way. Welcome to the couch.
0: Go ahead, roll up them sleeves. It's time for the bloodletting. How are your humors?
1: Oh, because it's 1602. I'm
0: not sure if that's historically accurate, <laughs> but it did make me chuckle. Uh
1: it's it's interesting reading this comic. I I like uh Asgard's Assassin, I had never read Witch Hunter Angela before, but I had read the Neil Game in 1602. And from what I can tell, this, because of the Secret Wars shenanigans, is not the exact timeline of the Neil Gaiman book, like things are different here. For example, opening the story with King James being Witchbreed, and not just any Witchbreed, he's James Howlett, he's Wolverine, Logan.
0: So, Sarah and Angela's mission in life, sent by God Doom, is to kill Witchbreed, and Witchbreed is just all of our mutant buddies? Yes. I know that the copy said that this was, this comic was like morally ambiguous, but I think this is more like downright wrong.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when doom is your God, any orders you take from that God are wrong, right? Uh, But what I do like about Witch Hunter Angela is how it reflects the journey that the 616 Angela was going on. You know, when she arrived, uh, from heaven into the Marvel Cinematic Universe when the Tenth Realm was finally revealed to be a part of the Nine Realms or was an addition to the Nine Realms, she had to reevaluate her purpose and she had to sever herself from the angels of heaven and find her own way, her own philosophy for living. Um, and that happens again in 1602. You know, it starts with her following the orders of God Doom. and over the course of hunting witch breed and discovering the Faustians and enchantress, she realizes that maybe uh, there's 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 something else here beyond just following what God Doom says
0: she clearly is the most comfortable when she has a rigid set of orders yes. or rules to follow. And I think that what she's struggling with in this arc is, what she's being told to follow her like little formula is not adding up to something that feels right to and for her. And yeah. she ends up having to make a really hard choice.
1: And and Sarah is there just as she was in Asgard's assassin, although as Malekith in that case, but uh, to, you know, say, uh, let's think about this.
0: She's way more, um, She's way more of a moral relativist. Absolutely. But as of right now, while her aim in life is to still murder, cleanse, genocide, witch breeds, Uh she is going about it exactly the right way.
1: Uh, I mean, if you say so. She is
0: in the castle of the King of England. Uh Proximity lends power. Okay. She is ready for her suddenly. She is in the place of (laughs) power right now. Now, does she know that definitely King James is a witch breed and therefore has to be slain? No and she can't really get to the bottom of it, so she says this quote, I am confounded, all I have is my instincts. When fear knocks, she doesn't know if King James is in fact a witch breed, let Faith answer. Listening to that inside voice, she knows what she has to do, behead the King of England.
1: Okay, all right, but over the course of this volume, that voice starts to say that that voice that you hear slay that witch breed might be wrong.
0: Yes, what her ultimate plan does turn out to be a little bit of her plan, the remix. She isn't going to be killing witch breeds. She is going to be killing Faustians, many of which happen to also be witch breeds. Uh-huh. It's, it's, um, it's complicated, but in terms of having a goal and going about it, in the best way possible. Oh, and she even uh, started small, because the wish breed she brought in right? to King James was just like a head with feet.
1: Right, right, right. But And, and she didn't even know that she would be starting a chain of events that would reveal King James to be Witchbreed. But then when Witchbreed presented itself, she acted on her instinct, on her heart's desire.
0: She did have a theory. And that theory is, if you are going to pose as someone who is not a Witchbreed, it would be by... Posing as someone who wants to kill witch breeds? Yeah,
1: yeah, like you, the King James doth protest too much.
0: But what he didn't consider is that Angela and Sarah as a team are super efficient and they went about murdering his kinsmen, his secret kinsmen, I guess, left and right. And he's like, okay, Angela, I guess you can slow down now <laughs> with the cleansing of witch breeds.
1: Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, it's it's a really ugly world, uh, or, or a really ugly section within a really ugly battle world.
0: Now, um, even though the last time we met Sarah, she was actually Malaketh. I think some of the kind of dynamics of their relationship still exist now that we're in the 1602 version Agreed. of Sarah. One of which is that when... Uh, Angela kills King James. Sarah is like, oh, you were right. I owe you four shillings. <laughs> so now she is still gambling and kind of fetishizing that idea of nothing for nothing owing and being owed. Um and Angela is even participating in it, which me that which shows me that she's being a little bit more flexible.
1: And because this volume does not have the question that was bothering Angela in Asgard's Assassin. The question of like, is this Sarah, my Sarah? Like, it doesn't make any sense. That question isn't present at the beginning of 1602. Therefore, their compatibility, their partnership is stronger than anything we saw in Asgard's Assassin. And that is an incredibly appealing place to be with these two characters. And I feel like it's in 1602 where you really start to go, oh. I like these two as a functioning couple, and I want more of them uh, and and that's played even to better effect when they go to the mermaids Tavern, where Sarah is truly in her element. and Angela gets to, you know, go a little gaga over that.
0: Sarah thinks of herself as a storyteller, as a creative, even in this story where she is. Hunting witch breed—that is her number one job. But she has a side gig <laughs> as story as storyteller, and the Mermaid's Tavern is full of Elizabethan playwrights. Yeah,
1: and if you're like a fan of Sandman, a comic that we're currently blitzing through on our Patreon, uh, some characters show up in 1602 that frequent the pubs of Sandman, including Marlowe, Shakespeare, those two guys,
0: and. Sarah is really clicking with them. They all recognize her. They're all teasing and jibing, and Angela actually feels a little bit left out, and Mm -hmm. Sarah has to go like, chill, let's just go with the flow.
1: We've all been in situations like that where you go to a party where your partner is maybe a little more engaged and on it than you are, and it can feel isolating, but also you kind of admire your partner for being so engaged with all these other people.
0: But lucky for Angela, they're not just there to schmooze, they are there hunting Faustians. And the difference between a witch breed and a Faustian is a witch breed is a mutant. They're born different. The Faustians are someone who have sought out some kind of deal maker and they have traded something in order to be extraordinary and have superpowers,
1: right? So the X Men would be witch breed, and the Fantastic Four would be Faustian. Exactly. Uh, I, I like. I've always found the difference in how the public reacts to mutants versus superpowered individuals like Spider Man uh, differently to be fascinating. Why would we celebrate and venerate? people like Captain America and loathe someone like Scott Summers, right? And in 1602, the line between Witchbreed and Faustian feels even thinner and highlights how dumb it is to hate one over the other. But what I like about that is that's what racism is. It's stupid. Hatred is absurd. It It's makes- arbitrary. Yes.
0: 1602 is a little different because um, Angela and Sarah deprioritize their hunting of which breeds yes. when they discover that these faustians are popping up all over the place. When
1: you live in Dr. Doom's world or God Doom's world, he doesn't want any power threat. So he's gonna kill anything that walks with a little extra pep in their step.
0: And I think that God Doom would be even more threatened by the Faustians because there is this intentionality Mm. behind them choosing to be stronger, choosing to have this physical magical advantage.
1: Right, it's not evolution rising up, it's a force rising up.
0: So if you want to find out more about Faustians, who do you got to talk to? Kit Marlowe. Yeah. So since the play has been written and popularized, these Fa- these Faustians have been popping up at even greater numbers and Sarah makes the connection because she is a storyteller. She knows that stories change hearts and minds.
1: Right, Marlo being the author of Faust.
0: Do we need to explain like what Faust is about?
1: Uh, deal with the devil.
0: Did you guys not have PBS? Did you not watch Wishbone? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a deal with the devil. This guy, he wants to be smarter. He wants to have a beautiful wife. He uh, makes a deal with the devil. Works out kind of okay.
1: Yeah, and that's the interesting wrinkle that 1602 Witch Hunter Angela throws into all of this, this idea that Marlowe puts the idea out there and that that, that power in the story is, is like viral.
0: I feel like the way that Sarah explains it makes it make sense for me that by writing this story, the story of Faust, he created this curiosity about making deals. And in this context, the Enchantress is from the realm of the fairy and she's looking for a way to um, re-engage the land of 1602 with fairy magic. And so she just kind of sees this like as an opening, like, hey, you wanna make a deal? I'll be a deal maker. I'll use my fairy magic to make your wild dreams come true at a cost. Yeah, I I
1: mean, I feel like it is very corporate of her, right? Like, if you want to sell cigarettes to kids and you see that, like, right now, the hot thing is Star Wars and suddenly we're selling galactic cigarettes, right? With, like, a puff that's out of this world.
0: I kind of want to smoke now. That sounds amazing. (laughs) No, Lisa. In order for Angela and Sarah to get the dealmaker, the enchantress, to show up, they have to kill one of her Faustians, who happens to be... Captain James Barnes of Clan Buchanan, who is out of this world hot, according to everyone in this tavern, and has a metal arm.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Bucky, Bucky's Bucky, like Bucky in whatever universe, he's gonna be uh, a hot snack.
0: So when the Enchantress shows up, I like you using the term hot snack. <laughs> you, should, I, you should call me that every once in a while.
1: Oh, I'm the hot snack.
0: <laughs> You're the hot snack? I'm the hot snack. I'm a full meal. <laughs> I'm enriching, I'm nourishing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're a feast. But Enchantress does show up, and when she shows up, she wants to strike a deal with Angela.
0: Which, Angela begins to say nothing for, and she doesn't get to finish it, and that's the only mention of Uh, her hottest catchphrase Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm, the last mm -hmm. arc we read.
1: Now, the the, the deal is, um, guess what? You've killed one of my Faustians. Uh, you're gonna kill more Faustians, but when you kill the fourth Faustian, or actually when you kill the third Faustian, I'm coming for Sarah.
0: It's the fourth Faustian if you include Bucky. Yeah. But if you're not including Bucky, it's the third. The what m- math? <laughs> it's confusing. But Sarah doesn't actually get to hear this arrangement, and um, she goes like, Angela, like, what's wrong? What happened? What have we done? And Angela says, don't, don't. Don't ask me what we have done, ask me what we have to do, which is totally like make your one day your day one. And she is. Yeah. She has a new goal, she does not want Sarah to die, she has to figure this out and she's starting right now.
1: And that leads directly into the second issue and on the first page of that second issue, that's really where Angela starts to question God Doom. And her own purpose, like I was saying earlier.
0: Angela is really not open to talking about her discomfort. It's Sarah who urges her, and I love her turn of phrase. Like, this is a turn of phrase that I'm like, I feel like we should adopt this for our relationship. Mm. But what Sarah says to get Angela to open up is like, please don't make me a stranger to your thoughts. Mm. And it reminds Mm. me of Esther Perel and the idea that a couple has to come together and come apart like you're allowed to have your own um internal life but please reconnect with me and and familiarize me with what's going on inside of you because i'm curious yeah
1: and if you are being eaten up inside If you leave it inside and you don't talk to anybody, like it will eat you up inside. That's what it's doing. And
0: also your partner is going to be looking at you. And if you don't tell them what's wrong, they're they're going to fill in the blank. Mm. Their imagination is going to fill in that blank. Yeah. And who knows what that trash is going to be. Well,
1: it's usually catastrophic. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) If I've learned anything, whatever your wife is thinking that you're thinking, it's way worse.
0: (laughs) So um, Angela tells Sarah about the curse and how the curse is making her want to stop the quest altogether. And Sarah actually is the one who goes like, I don't think that that's what we should do. She says, Doom, who is God, set us upon a holy quest and you'd throw it aside for love of me? So she's going like, do you really hold our relationship over our number one principle, which is to listen to God, to listen to doom. And anthony says, for the first time, I do not know what to do. Mm. And that is the thing that frightens me, Sarah. This thing of, like, I have an equation by which I live by. Doom says to do a thing. You do that thing. And now that math is not working out internally. What is supposed to be right, feels wrong.
1: Yeah, and of course what happens next is that they are interrupted by the Guardians of the Galaxy.
0: Not the Guardians of the (laughs) Galaxy, the Gardener's Men? (laughs) Yeah, like, okay, so
1: Angela feels like a perfect fit for 1602, right? You know, Neil Gaiman's universe. The Guardians of the Galaxy do not. It is... Really uncomfortable to read for me for some reason. Like I, I just can't make these uh, r- a square blocks fit in these round ho- holes. Is that is that? No, the, that's it. That's you nailed it. it. That's right. Good. Those shapes
0: don't go together. They don't go
1: together.
0: <laughs> um, but I, it makes sense to me that they're like this kind of like. Band of Merry Men, they're Uh like entertainers who are traveling together from place to place. I like
1: them depicted. Like I really like this version of Groot and I like this like feral raccoon character, but it, it doesn't quite jive. But because Guardians of the Galaxy are so tied to Angela in the 616, I guess it felt necessary to have them in Battle World with her.
0: For some reason, that is not explained. Angela and Sarah join them on their quest, I guess. Everything's a quest. If you're Just going cause. from point A to point B, it's a quest. Um, but they've got a wedding gig. And so they're going to be the entertainment um, uh, at the wedding between Edwin Brock and Anne Wagging. Yeah. <laughs> Venom's wedding. We're not gonna go into the details of this wedding, but Venom's intentions, not great. Um, But the cutest part of this issue is that Sarah and Angela, of course, show up without a gift. So Sarah's like, I'll tell this tale.
1: Oh, this scene's so cute. You know, we talked about in the last storyline, Asgard's Assassin, there are these tiny little moments of cuteness, like where Angela's uh, bands, ribbons, start wagging like tails when Sarah's around. And there's like the scene in Manhattan, in Central Park, where th- they're, you know, they catch that little girl's kickball. But there are few and far between. But when they arrived, so cute. I feel like, weirdly, in this volume, a lot more cuteness.
0: Totally. Like, um, there is this kind of ongoing joke That Angela does not really understand Sarah's sense of humor. Like when they walk into this town, there is some uh, kind of imagery that comes across as somewhat pagan. Right. And Sarah goes like, it's pagan demonium! And uh, Angelo replies, this is a this is a pity smile, my sweet. <laughs> this is a pity smile. Which is just so cute.
1: And very true to relationships. Uh, Lisa's given me many pity smiles.
0: <laughs> but I also find you so cute. Like, there's nothing more adorable than a guy just failing at making a joke.
1: Oh, I'm an expert at that.
0: <laughs> so, Sarah's tale is um, a little uh, parable about Angela's upholderness. So, King Odin has left his offspring, Angelo, who is clearly Angela, in charge of Asgard. And so, the second that Odin leaves, she's like, "I'm gonna clean house up here." There's this guy Heimdall, who. Um, has slept with his wife before they were technically married so I'm going to put them both to death. So Heimdall writes to the lowly nun who is beautiful and but, but chaste, Sister Sarah, and she comes along and saves the day by being very clever. <laughs> and so she says that she will marry Angelo if Angelo sets Heimdall and Siri free and Angelo is like, hell yeah. <laughs> and then when they go to sign the marriage contract, it is not, in fact, a marriage contract. It is a contract to become witch hunters. Yeah,
1: and what, what I love about the way this seed is depicted is one, we get to see what's happening in Sarah's story, but we also get to witness Angela reacting to Sarah telling the story on the bottom pa- page, on the panels on the bottom page. And Angela is just like, no, please stop <laughs> talking. I know. She's utterly
0: mortified. Yes. She's like, none of these facts are true. And uh, what's the point of telling a story if it's not true? Please
1: enough. You gotta stop. <laughs>
0: But Sarah is truly in her happy place and the story is very well received.
1: So of course it turns out Eddie's a Faustian and Angela cuts off his head.
0: I think I actually messed up the math earlier. It's very unclear, but the last page of this comic, Angela goes like, that's two down. So if that's two down, does that mean that they have one more Faustian? That's how I did the math. Okay, so (laughs) she says two Faustians down and we can turn around right now. That can be our last Faustian. And this is when Sarah begins to make her mess her message. She says, "Angela, when I am with you, I am not afraid. I feel comfortable to go ahead and kill Faustians because I know if I'm with you, it's all going to work out for the best." And she says this on multiple occasions on their journey, up until when she does die.
1: <laughs> spoilers. Uh, so the third Faustian, it's a real Rapunzel situation. There's a pretty maid in a tower, and that pretty maid is rogue.
0: hmm she's like a double whammy, because she is A witch hunter, no. A
1: witch breed. A witch
0: breed. So she has her don't touch me powers and she wanted to get rid of them. So of course she made a deal with the enchantress. So she is also a Faustian. Yeah,
1: and I feel like that kind of fits with Rogue's 616 version where she, yes, is a mutant, but also she has the powers of uh, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. Like,
0: I, I, li- I like the I It like totally the, makes sense. You know, I like the fun that they're having here. Of course, this is 1602 World, so her name is not Rogue. It is Anna Maria. Yeah,
1: I'm not gonna be calling them by their Elizabethan names. It's I just, just too
0: confusing. Yes. So we're gonna call her Rogue, but at this point in time... Sarah's like, well, maybe we can figure out a way to save her from being a Faustian, and then we don't have to, once we've done it once, we can do it a bunch of times, and we're good. And so um, Angela is put on babysitter duty to watch Rogue while Sarah does her research. But the problem is that once you've made a deal with the Enchantress, she just has, like, the key to the back door of your bod, and she gets to, like... (laughs) embody you at all times, and she's making it a real problem.
1: Yeah, she gets into Rogue and causes Rogue to run a little havoc.
0: And, um, but Sarah finds a way that they kill the Faustian in Rogue, but the witch breed does not die. And clever people love that kind of stuff. Sarah is like, I have totally found a loophole. She is dead, but not dead. Clearly the curse is broken, and Enchantress is like, hold on, I make the rules here. You kill the Faustian part of her, that totally counts. That's (laughs) your third one, and you, my friend, are dead.
1: Even though this does not have really anything to do with Angela and Sarah, there is a really beautiful moment in this issue between Cloak and Dagger, mm-hmm. illustrated by Fraser Irving, where they're put into the Romeo and Juliet storyline. And I just I just wanted to point out like those few pages I thought were maybe the best pages in this entire trade.
0: They were gorgeous, and I do think that it plays to the theme of this book, which is the power of, of story. Mm. Even though Johnson and Bowen did not act out that last scene of Romeo and Juliet to Will Shakespeare's script, because a jealous actor replaced Johnson's poison with real poison, the ending that they created through their extraordinary magic has lived with Angela and Sarah ever since they saw them at the Globe Theater.
1: Yeah, and there's those four panels, you know, two panels on one page at the bottom, two panels on the other page at the bottom, of Angela and Sarah watching, and the acting that Fraser Irving does on their faces is extremely powerful, and you understand where they are and how this... Scene How this play, how this moment affected them deeply.
0: Sarah looks con- completely enraptured, and Angela is like, That's kind of shifty. But when I look over at Sarah, and Sarah is loving the story so much, she can't help but just beam and grin.
1: Yeah, and like you can read it a couple ways you can read it that way, or you can read Angela seeing how Sarah reacts to it and putting on like a uh, duplication of Sarah's reaction Mm. where I I emulate my love, so I'm gonna try to observe this through her eyes.
0: Ooh, your tribe is your vibe, they are mirroring. I forgot to mention that before the Enchantress comes and makes good on her curse and kills Sarah, Angela goes to Sarah and says like, I'm really getting it attached to rogue and what if we just adopted her and we became a family
1: i want to live in that comic book
0: i knew it so in our last episode i was like i know what angela wants she wants tracts of land she wants to settle down and to me i'm like i'm totally right
1: yeah 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 she wants
0: she if she is not living out Doom's orders and she's not nothing for nothing yes then she wants to be with Sarah building a family yes
1: yes 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 that I'm I'm glad you recircled back to that because that is like I think a an extremely critical moment in witch hunter Angela we, uh, a, sadly actually, Sarah's dead
0: yeah we we get this really beautiful funeral pyre scene where Angela places Sarah's body on the altar and she sings Scarborough Fair as the wood burns and I guess spirit taken up into the heavens or whatever. Um, But uh, of course, Sarah did find a loophole (laughs) and her skull is like, hey, alas, poor York, aren't I funny?
1: If Sarah's in a story, there's a loophole where she dies and comes back.
0: Oh yeah. The final issue opens with skull Sarah totally chuffed with herself that she out- outsmarted the enchantress and she is just singing away and angela is not happy and she's like you could have totally let me in on the plan and i wouldn't have had to go through the heartbreak of your viking funeral and sarah is like marlo wrote doctor faustus about deals with the devil And the Enchantress made that story a reality through magic. For me to be able to come back as this talking skull that, that you plucked out of the ashes of my corpse, you had to believe the story that I was dead. And so it goes back to that idea of the power of story, which is totally one of the principles of comic book couples counseling the stories we tell ourselves the stories we enjoy and invest in shape our lives and change the world
1: also everything's a story
0: yeah everything is a story angela being um betrothed to sarah is a story sarah being um an angel is a story. Everything is something we're just, God being doom, doom being God is just a, a God. Construct.
1: God Doom has written Battleworld. Battleworld is a fiction by God Doom.
0: Here's the way Sarah puts it, and it is perfect. Belief is a spell. Stories are spells. While you were comforting our wayward would-be ward. That's right? hard to say. Yeah, I know, I'm really <laughs> proud of myself, first try. I was distilling magic of my own, enough to conquer death, enough to cheat the enchantress, right? So I love that idea of stories being spells, that belief is just a spell that you're putting upon yourself.
1: And this, again, ties back all the way to our Loki and Loki episode where we were discussing Kieran Gillen's take on Journey into Mystery, you know, the Twilight Pen.
0: We are all holding and writing our own story. Yeah, The story that Angela and Sarah are writing is that they are going to go to the Enchantress and get Sarah's body restored. So when they arrive at her castle, the Enchantress immediately starts trying to get Angela in on a deal. And what she says, actually, I find really interesting and persuasive, where um, she says that, it it may seem on its face that we are very different, but really we are two sides of the same coin. Thou art impersonal justice, right? You follow the rules rigidly. I am impersonal fortune. I don't care who you <laughs> are. What you want, if 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 you have something to give me for what you want, I will do that for you regardless. And she says, like, I can do the same for you, Angela. I can give you anything that you want. You want to kill Mother Abbess of heaven? You can do that. You, you want to settle down with Sarah and raise Rogue? That can happen. But Sarah interjects and says, like, Angela, don't accept any deal with the deal maker. She cannot write your story for you. Only the story you make for yourself will be strong enough to change who you truly are. That is a very powerful quote and should totally be one of our words of affirmation in our next episode.
1: Into it, into it, making a note. Uh, Now, Enchantress responds to Sarah by saying, like, what are you going to do? If you cut me down, you're just going to become of the fairy queen. And Angela's like, yeah, okay, so be it. And she does it. And that's like the Conan, the barbarian appeal of Angela is people want to snow her logic with words and she just melts it with uh, an action and usually a violent one.
0: When Angela slays the fairy queen, She gets a whole makeover, and now she has these huge, like, huge horns. She's boss. And um, Sarah's body is immediately restored. But then Angela does something that I find a little bit inexplicable. She tells Sarah to run. Because she had overheard, back in Mermaid's Tavern, Kit Marlowe say, like, Sarah, you've got to leave Angela because Angela is going to take you down a dark path.
1: And this is not too unfamiliar with the Angela that we've seen in the 616. When she does have a victory and she's feeling good, a little doubt creeps in and a little like, and that that doubt is self-doubt and maybe tinged with a little self-loathing too. And even though all she wants in the world is to be with Sarah and, you know, raise rogue together. uh, She can't possibly see that as a reality. And I think that's why she tells her to get out of here.
0: She says like, I am willing to give up who I am. I am happy to stop being Angela, the witch hunter and begin being Angela, the deal maker. But I don't, want to lose, I don't want the universe to lose who you are.
1: And it's not like Sarah walks away or runs. She's propelled away by Angela.
0: And as she rides away, she says like, I will find another way to bring you back to me. And she begins singing this kind of ode to Angela. Um, And here's the text. Though crowned with thorn and flower so dread to be seen she is loved by her companion my lost and faustian queen and and as we turn the page we see that she is telling this tale to the other playwrights of The Mermaid's Tavern. Yeah,
1: and I gotta say, I hate the ending to this book. Mm -hmm. Like, I really just don't like it because her story is incorporated by Shakespeare into A Midsummer Night's Dream. But that doesn't really, like, work. That doesn't
0: restore Angela to her. It makes Angela, I guess, immortal, but... Not really. The character isn't even named Angela. It's Titania or something. Yeah, it does not
1: not work for me. It doesn't work for me. I do like the fact that Marlo has become a Faustian himself. Yeah, well, (laughs) that's
0: how, like, that was the exchange that they made. She got to take his story, and he became... Um, like immortal. a little fork, yeah,
1: a little forked tongue guy.
0: <laughs> and um, and of course Sarah is like, okay, you can be immortal, but you're going to get into this Iron Man, which is the 1602 version of an Iron Maiden. I did like that. And I'm going to fill it with molten iron, and you're just going to be stuck in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, the events of 1602 and Battle World get resolved in the Secret Wars miniseries. God Doom is dethroned. And, you know, Franklin Richards makes things all right again. Phew. Um, I, I, so what's fascinating is that when we return in our next session, our final session with Angela and Sarah, with Angela, Queen of Hell, it doesn't... I mean, I, I haven't read it. Lisa, you've read it, right? Have you read Queen of Hell? You read Asgard's Assassin? I don't think so. Oh, Okay, so what I am curious about is whether any of the emotional beats of 1602 carry over when the 616 is restored. Like, do these emotional experiences that happened in 1602 carry over to Queen of Hell. I, and and I, I, I hope so. But, but
0: probably not, right? I don't know. it's a completely different storyline. Well, it
1: is a completely different storyline. I, I mean, it picks up directly after Asgard's Assassin. But I haven't read Queen of Hell. You haven't read Queen of Hell.
0: I may have. I don't know.
1: But I have read other 616 comics that came after Secret Wars. And some of those Battle World plot lines did spill over into the continuing stories. So I'm just... All I'm saying is I'm I'm hoping we get some spillover here from 1602 because I did like a lot of the exchanges and the development between Angela and Sarah in this book.
0: I am ready to dismiss all of the events of 1602. Oh, okay. Just so I can find out or recall exactly how Angela Get Sarah out of hell.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's less about how these things happened, and it's more about how they are changing or bringing these two closer together. Because after these two volumes, I do really like them as a couple, and I want more of them in the Marvel universe.
0: Yeah, I do want to hold on to the emotional progress that they have made, and the and I and the tremendous sacrifices they have made to be and stay together. Yes. I would love to continue to speculate about what's going to happen, but our time is up. Our session is now over and it's time for us to reflect on what we have learned in this time in 1602 with Angela and Sarah through the lessons, through the lens of Robin Roberts. How about you start?
1: Yeah, well, I think in terms of writer by the day and Angela and Sarah, Robin Roberts, a uh, notion that your tribe is your vibe stands out the most to me and it's clear that these two as a tribe is a vibe that works and we know obviously that Sarah wants to be a tribe with Angela. And we know that Angela wants to be a tribe with Sarah, but she has a fear that Sarah does not. She has a fear of self. She has maybe even a hatred of self that is blocking her from the possibility of being a tribe with Sarah. And that's what She needs to work on.
0: I feel like Angela sees herself as kind of like a tool, as kind of disposable, where she goes like, well, I'm an angel of heaven. I am here to serve this purpose. I'm a witch hunter of doom. I'm here to serve this purpose. But nobody can fill the shoes of Sarah to her. This like um, singular unique person that the universe is made better by.
1: Well, the Angela that we have seen in these last two volumes, Asgard's Assassin and Witch Hunter, Angela, is an Angela who has had her world turned upside down. And when you have your world turned upside down, it's very hard for you to connect with anybody, let alone a lover, right? So, Sarah could help Angela through this and has done that in this volume, but Angela needs to be open to help.
0: Mm. Like to me, I see it as like, when you are in a partnership, everything has to be recalibrated to integrate that other person. So like Angela's principles have to be questioned and changed. Angela and Sarah's separate goals have to be made one goal, if not complementary goals. Mm, mm, And mm. I think that that is part of what Angela is struggling with at the end of this book, where she goes like, well, it has to be either my purpose or Sarah's purpose. Yeah, it's
1: interesting to compare where Angela is at the end of Witch Hunter, Angela, versus at the end of Asgard's Assassin, because like, Where she is at the end of Asgard's Assassin, she's determined, like, I'm going to hell and I'm getting Sarah back. She's back on a mission, right? Whereas she's victorious at the end of Witch Hunter Angela and then pushes Sarah away. So I'm very nervous, excited, anxious to see what happens when they do go to hell or when she goes to hell and she does pull Sarah back, you know, is it going to be just a situation like we have here at the end of Witch Hunter Angela?
0: I feel like Witch Hunter Angela's ending is just another opportunity to highlight um, Angela's absolutism versus Sarah's, like, we are going, like, she is like one of those who um, kind of holds cleverness above Mm. all other virtues Mm. where she goes like, we always, I, Sarah, I'm going to find a way out of this. Like, the, if there's a way to make you the enchantress, there's a, a way to make you un the enchantress. Right. You know what I yeah. mean? Where Sarah goes, like, well, I've been told that if I kill the enchantress, then I'm the enchantress, and that's <laughs> how it is until someone kills me. And you know, I don't see that so serving Sarah. If I am so changed, then Sarah would have to change, and I don't want Sarah to change. I love Sarah. Right,
1: so for Angela, her final action is an action of love mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah, right. Yeah, so uh, I, I I hope that this sequence does uh, travel with her back to the Queen of Hell storyline so that... If a similar feeling arrives, she's already had the practice of working it out here in 1602. But Lisa, like is there anything else that we haven't covered? Uh, any takeaways from Robin Roberts and this particular Angela and Sarah story that you're bringing with you?
0: I find myself relating to Angela in hmm. 1602 because I do, I am an obliger who tips upholder. And I always think, like, so she went from nothing for nothing being her number one principle to following the rules of God Doom and being this witch hunter. And I always think that, oh, if I unlock the next principle or if I find the next rule, everything is going to be fixed. And that does turn your world upside down. It can feel defeating, when you find out this principle that you have been basing your decisions on is faulty. And it feels like, oh, if I'm wrong about this. What
1: else am I wrong about?
0: I'm wrong about everything. And relating it back to Robin Roberts, like, yes, when fear knocks, let faith answer, but just because it was an answer that you found in good faith, doesn't mean that it was right. And I've been thinking a lot about the idea of like, how do you determine what is fear and what is something that is intended to just put you out of your comfort zone or or push you to the next level? What is the, you know, quote unquote, God's voice thing? Like, how do you figure that out? And there has been a time in my life where I'm like, The idea of looking for God's voice is ridiculous and it is all just logic and chaos. And now over the course of CBCC, I'm starting to go like, oh no, maybe the God metaphor is useful and maybe it's not really important if God is real or a metaphor, as long as it's making someone's life better, maybe it could make my life better. Hmm. And I found myself having like something of like a Schrodinger's faith hmm, where it's like I can speak fluently in god doesn't exist and god does exist and spirituality is useful and like I feel like I'm where I am right now like I'm happy to keep that question In this box. Interesting. Where I am happy to go like, God is dead and God is alive. Like, I I like having fluency in both of those realms. Hmm. But if I were to go like, well, how do you discern what is fear that is defeating you and fear that is challenging you is like, Am I, is, is what I'm afraid of an outcome or is what I'm afraid of an emotion? Hmm. So, for example, like going to Comic-Con and telling people I'm going to be writing articles for Film School Rejects. Part of me is like, I don't want to tell people that <laughs> because if I don't write those articles... Uh-huh. Then I am going to feel embarrassed, uh-huh. right? I'm afraid of an emotion, uh-huh.
1: but you are going to write those articles, Lisa. That
0: that that's the thing. Like, so I think maybe I should be pushing myself a little. I like I think that this is a challenging fear, where it's just like, okay, well, if you're so afraid of being found out that you didn't write these articles, then just write the flippin' articles, right? Like, I'm I'm what I'm afraid of is not. An outcome. It's just like I'm afraid of a feeling. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I and and I totally understand that, and I have felt that as well, and I have felt that recently as well. Um, so
0: is God Doom telling me to write articles for <laughs> film school rejects? Maybe.
1: I, sh- I sure hope it's not God Doom. <laughs> it might be. You have to
0: be ready. Like no matter what decision that you make in your life, you have to be, and it could be a big one. Mm-hmm. You have to be ready for it to be wrong. If not ready, just open to it being wrong.
1: Okay, I'm open to a God Doom and I'm open to God Doom being wrong, Lisa. It's uh, all
0: a journey, just stay open.
1: I'm, I, I'm so uh, curious to see how this conversation continues and concludes in our next and final session with Angela and Sarah, as experienced in Angela, Queen of Hell, Uh, I've grown really fond of these two, even though I really haven't experienced the pure version of these two. Um, And I I think we're just going to have to reevaluate if that is even true when we get done with Queen of Hell. Um, I think
0: that. Semantically, Mm. it's so interesting, and Sarah would love the hell out of Uh,
1: it. Yes, that is a fact.
0: It is just so clever. Uh,
1: But you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for that final session with Angela and Sarah, because we're going to Comic-Con, San Diego, California, after three years of, well, the world we've been living in and no Comic-Con. So we have some special episodes geared up to drop in this feed. We've already had a conversation with Matt Kent, the creator of Mind Management. He is launching a new imprint over at Dark Horse Comics called Flux House. That conversation, I'm really proud of. I think that, that was a great chat, Lisa.
0: Yeah, I agree. It was so fun.
1: And it's all about format and comic book delivery systems and it it's 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 very geeky it's it's very passionate and i think you all are going to really enjoy that conversation and at the beginning of this episode we teased another big conversation on the way another big episode that is going to hopefully serve as our san diego comic con episode that'll drop while we're there in san diego but, you know, we recorded this uh, conversation in two parts, and in the middle, when we hit stop on that that recording, uh, we received an email canceling <laughs> that interview, canceling that conversation. Hopefully it's a
0: rescheduling. It is
1: a rescheduling. We are in the process of rescheduling, but we haven't done it now. And therefore, Lisa... I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like- We do not
0: know what the future holds. Uh,
1: like, uh, you know, am I going to write Film School Rejects articles or not? Uh, are we going to have this conversation? I know at some point we're definitely going to have this conversation, and I am hoping that it is going to be dropping in your feed on Comic-Con weekend, but I'm not promising it now. Yeah. <laughs> now, our final session with Angela and Sarah is going to come out after comic-con and that will be in about three weeks so it's a little bit of a wait it's going to be worth it though friends i i hope you've enjoyed these previous two sessions as much as we have and i hope you're as anxious as we are to get to queen of hell i i i think this couple has been a really complicated and fascinating one for comic book couples counseling and uh you know I mean, I'm just excited to get to it.
0: I'm really excited to meet Sarah.
1: <laughs> We're very With excited. Was our last episode? to meet Sarah with hopefully our last Hopefully she'll episode. turn up. Yeah, hopefully she turns up. Uh, you know, I have no idea. I haven't read the comic book. But that is going to do it for this episode, friends.
0: Great. We finished just in time to make my appointment with the deal maker. Oh, no. I'm giving up our firstborn oh. for more Twitter followers. Oh, uh,
1: yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> and, of course, those Twitter followers can find me at Mouthdork on all social medias. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool handle and fluke. And if you have words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
0: Thank you so much for asking. I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes.
1: Our last Sleepwalking with Sandman episode, the conclusion of A Game of You, uh, involved a lot of drinking of a sour ale called Unicorn Farts, and Lisa spilled it. All over the (laughs) podcast table.
0: You can hear Brad get legit mad at me.
1: (laughs) Uh, If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast.
0: You can also reach out and touch us in person at cbccpodcast. Comic-Con, yes. SDCC. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Hashtag CBCC, SDCC.
0: Yeah, just like the real Comic-Con, full of C's. <laughs> <laughs> you can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an active service... Why not write a review of the show while you're there? Just yes, please. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod.
1: So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full.
0: And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.
1: But that's the past. I know it now. I, I don't know it. about
0: you. Oh, I should let you finish. No, no,
1: no. Interrupt me. I love it when people interrupt me, Lisa.
0: That's a f- <laughs>